This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome once more to The Minefield. Valid Ali is my name. My co-host is Scott Stevens. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life and this... We welcome you to our final in our Ramadan series for 2023. Um, what is it? The fifth episode. It's fallen across, oddly, across the weeks this year. Mm. So we've stretched into a fifth episode, but it's kind of worked in the way that the text we've been using as a starting point, I think, has fallen. Scott, how are you doing? I'm sad, Willie. Oh, why, why are you sad? This, this has been... I mean, look, I, I always feel that we leave the episodes with me having gained a great deal. You know, I mean, it's, it's partly the value that I place on conversation generally. It's partly the value I place on conversation with you in particular. But there's also been something, I think, about the character, the quality, the groundedness of this particular series that, I mean, I can't remember a sequence of episodes that I've learned more from, that I've felt kind of challenged at the level of the soul more relentlessly uh, than over these weeks. I've learned a tremendous amount from you. And I'm, I, I don't know, I'm, there's a little bit of remorse. I'm filled with a degree of, of gratitude. Uh, and I'm sad that this particular stretch of episodes is coming to an end. I wish it could. Well, in, in saying that, it's interesting because you mirror, I think, the way a lot of people feel about the end of Ramadan generally. Yeah. Which is a very intense time for, you know, depending on how you approach it, etc. It can be a very taxing time. Uh, and that's not the fasting. The fasting is kind of the least of it. It's everything else that gathers around that. And of course, we should point out that by the time most people are listening to this, Ramadan will in fact it be It will over. have finished, yeah. Some people, I think, on the podcast will have gotten it in like the last day or two, but but it will be over. But it, it's interesting. I think it says something about processes of retreating from the world into, I was going to call it a spiritual cocoon, but maybe that's not quite no, the right no. phrasing because yeah. it's not, you still are in the world, but it's there's something about that that retreat, that introspection and the intensity of that kind of effort that is, it's kind of rewarding in a way that can't be replicated elsewhere. But it's and a fact where you can try to sustain, yeah. you can try to keep parts of it, but mm. you never quite get the full bodied flavor, if you might wow. use that analogy. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was just about yeah. to say, I mean, the word that's going through my mind before you started talking was intensity. And there is a mm. kind of, there is that deliberateness of reflection. And uh, look, I'll, I'll just flag a show that we want to do in coming weeks, we've already planned on doing, on the difference between loneliness and solitude. And it just mm. strikes me that what this particular ordeal is, is just about the perfect exemplification of the spiritual discipline that's bound up with solitude. Uh, it's not a being isolated from the world. It is a being present both wholly to the self, but also to that which matters most within life. It's a full orientation of the self uh, towards that which matters most. And and what's funny is yes, that... Yes, and, and a change in the way that you view things. Yeah, So you right. start to see right. meanings behind things, I suppose, that you otherwise wouldn't. The more I think about what we've done over the last four weeks, there is a kind of underlying malady, isn't there, that's kept poking up to the surface behind each one of these moral incapacities, which I realize we're going to introduce in a second, so I don't want to tread on that. But, I mean, I, I think what has been present each week is the tendency of the ego to loom large, to mm. assert itself rather than merely express itself. That's an interesting distinction that Wittgenstein made, incidentally. 
the difference between the ego expressing itself, which is a moral task, you know, meaning what one says, standing behind one's own words, communicating truthfully, making oneself vulnerable to response. All of those things are, are moral tasks. Uh, the opposite of those things is speaking deceitfully uh, or prevaricating or somehow not meaning one words, but simply conforming oneself to the cliches of the day. Those are profoundly immoral tasks. Being being wholly present to oneself and expressing oneself truthfully, you know, that's that's a hard task to do. The opposite of that is self-assertion, where the self, the ego, looms large and causes all those other things in which one finds oneself in relation, uh, whether that be the world, other people, even the divine, to shrink as the result. I mean, that's that's the underlying malady here. And then the mm. process of reflection, of solitude, of this kind of intensity of reflection, the purpose of that is, you know, for want of a better term, to put the ego back in its place, to properly delimit its nature and to, uh, to take the, how can we put it, maybe the idolatry out of the ego, um, which of course is the task to which every human being is tasked throughout the, mm. the duration of their lives. Yeah, and we, this is, I think, the reason that, well, the reason, that's probably too strong a word. This is, I think, one of the benefits of Ramadan being a yearly thing hmm. and being a month-long thing is it's long enough to be transformational and then regular enough to mean that you can, if you if you do it right, you can keep building. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, what, I don't know if this is the right phrasing for what you described, but this sort of effacement yeah. of of the ego becomes an ongoing task, not sort of something that you simply do. That doesn't mean, however, that the minefield will simply take a break from anything that's happening in the news or the world all year. <laughs> we'll be back next week with something that will um, return the program to its usual depths. All right. Wow, usual depths. I saw, I wondered if I could sneak that in. <laughs> that I don't Apparently. like that at all. Oh. Um, Wading all right, back so into the shallows, we... I think, is the... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay. oh, there you go. Um, shall we set up this week? Yes, please. All right. So... For those of you who've been listening, you'll know that our series has revolved around the various limbs of a particular supplication that the the Prophet Muhammad, uh, وسلم, now I, I've never said that on mm, air actually, I should have put that out. So that's an Arabic phrase that means, I don't know, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, mm. which is something that Muslims will say whenever a Prophet's name is mentioned. And normally you'd say it in a conversation or even in a book, you'll see it sometimes written. And because it's a long formulation, it'll sometimes get turned into a little icon where the words are all written in Arabic mm, calligraphy right. on top of each other. <laughs> that or way an, it can keep appearing. Or an acronym. Yes, or an acronym, mm. something like that. Um, but it would be said for any of the prophets or some formulation like mm. that. Anyway, he had a, a supplication where he was seeking refuge in God from four things that we've kind of called throughout the series the moral incapacities. And those were a heart that cannot humble itself, a prayer that is not heard, a soul that is never satisfied, knowledge that does not benefit. And we've done those four up to this point in the series. There is a fifth one that we're going to use for today. Now, I've sort of mentioned in passing that this one is one that is slightly less authentic or is perhaps of more disputed authenticity is probably a more accurate way of describing it than the other four. Should I take a second to explain what that means? Yeah, Scott? sure. Please do. Do you think people understand what that means? Nope. There is something I think unique in the Islamic tradition in when it comes to primary texts, so the Quranic mm. text and then uh, the body of what they call hadith literature. Now, hadith is someone saying something, but in this technical sense, it refers to all the reports of everything 
that the Prophet Muhammad did or said or approved of or disapproved of. It's it's an incredibly detailed account of the Prophet's life, gathered together by all those people who lived lived alongside him and then passed on his stories and his teachings. But when people hear that, I think what they'll think is, ah, oh, okay, so these are just kind of something akin to folk tales that get passed down from generation to generation. And I think it's important here to say that actually nothing could be further from the truth mm. because actually what gathered around this, particularly a few generations later, where there started to be reports that sounded dubious and were sometimes invented for political reasons, things like that. Effectively, um, effectively ventriloquizing the prophet for political Game. Yes. Yeah. Often identifying groups of those who were condemned that just happened to correspond very precisely to one's own political enemies in a particular moment, yeah. things like yeah. that, right? So because of that, actually what the Muslims did was they developed an, an incredibly rigorous system for determining the authenticity or otherwise of any report that was attributed to the Prophet. And it was done... So in order for a report to be considered authentic it would have to have a chain of transmission in every generation from the last person to transmit it all the way back to the prophet. And every person in that chain of transmission would have their lives turned inside out to determine whether or not they, in fact, are likely to have met the person that they've narrated from, their memory, how good their memory was, their level of trustworthiness. And it gets into a level of detail where it's like, well, this person, you would take their report if they were young when they did it, but later in their life, their memory got bad. And so their narration is perhaps not as strong. And so what we'd then do is you'd look at whether or not there are other chains of transmission that have exactly the same report and so on. And so you get some reports that are completely uncontested because they are transmitted by so many different chains, all of which are authentic, that it's just impossible for there to have been any collusion over this. And then you have others where it's a very strong chain, but it's an isolated report. And so that has a different sort of a status. And then you have one where it's like, well, this has a person in a particular part of the chain that their memory was not as reliable. But the specificity with which these things are reported is actually quite stunning. Like you have sometimes if a person's reporting something they saw the prophet say or do, whatever, if they cannot be 100% certain on what the exact wording is, they will maybe, they'll sometimes give two versions of it. They'll say mm. he said this or it might have been this. So you're talking here about a culture that was an oral culture that was very good at taking in things, memorizing them, passing them on and so on. But then a level of, what would you call it, textual rigor mm. or historic rigor that surrounds it that I don't really know of any other example of it. It's it's a discipline in its own right. So this is like a specialisation. People would spend their lives studying this um, and determining this. But what that means is you get a whole range of reports, some range from so authentic that they're more or less unimpeachable, some are very strong, some would become merely strong, others would be weak, and then you get another range that would be regarded as fabrications. And a classification occurs. What's happened in this particular, the ones we're talking about, the first four of this series, these were parts of a supplication that the prophet would make that actually were, he would do so often, it was reported in so many different ways, in different orders, but with the same content by so many people that there's simply no real doubt that he would have said this and that he said it very often. It would be mm. like a daily practice. The fifth one of these that we're going to do today is not quite in that category. There are some who say it's authentic. There are some who say it isn't. But everyone agrees, and this is what's relevant for our purposes, 
everyone agrees that the meaning is authentic. Mm. That if he didn't say this particular one or he didn't say it as often as the others, his companions or those who were regarded as among the, the righteous of the early Muslims, they would say this, that this is something that was being said. It's just a question of how strongly we can trace it back to the prophet himself. Mm. Does all that make sense? Yeah, yeah, perfectly. And I think one of the important things is it's not only for our purposes, at least, it's an extension of the spirit of everything that we've been looking at. Uh, it's also a reflection of the common malady that we've been trying to diagnose over the last few weeks. So not only is it those two things, it is also, even if it's of sort of less than unimpeachable kind of theological or textual integrity, what we've been using these particular elements of the supplication to do is kind of spur or prod the moral imagination to create the opportunity within which we can plumb more deeply into the tendencies and self-deceptions of the self, but also to understand more fully, I think, um, the demands that are elicited from us in and through the moral life, the way that the presence, the moral reality of others uh, ought to draw us out rather than simply leave us confined, enclosed in a kind of egotistical cocoon, to use the term cocoon, but probably in a slightly more <laughs> derogatory way. So in each, you know, we, we haven't been doing theological commentaries, uh, no. but I think it's been fabulous the degree to which each one of these elements has spurred us to think through things and to think in ways that we simply would not be given the opportunity to do so in other, in other occasions. All right, so shall we do this one? Yes, please. So this one, the fifth and yep. final in our series... We've translated as an eye that cannot weep, mm. or you could say an eye that does not weep. Yeah. So the, the Arabic here is ain, so ain means eyes, so ain in la tadma' is the Arabic phrasing. This is kind of complicated, but ain is, is such a remarkable word in Arabic because it, it has so many, like you look it up in a dictionary and it just seems to go on forever. And a lot of them seem unrelated, but some of them are quite related. And ain ain she like the the ain of something is its essence, mm. but also another very common usage of the word ain is um, like a spring, a spring of water, or mm. a source of water, which is itself, of course, the source of life. Mm. So immediately, what you get, even just by drawing these two things out, and the connection with the eyes, I think I'm hoping will become clear in a second, is that uh, what would you call it? The semantic resonance that gathers around this word. The vain is a, a something that is so essential, elemental to life itself. Mm -hmm. And that the eye, I mean, we've all heard that expression that the eyes are the windows to the soul, etc. There's a certain truth that's being captured here, but it works both ways. There's that idea, but there's also, I think, the idea that the eye is something that goes to the core of something that we can be, and I know we've discussed this previously, Scott, I think maybe even a previous Ramadan series, that the eye is so central to the moral life because of actually everything that it takes in can deeply affect what happens within us, mm -hmm. which is why within moral traditions, like really every serious moral tradition until you reach modernity, I guess, people would take very seriously this idea that that's something that shouldn't be looked at that there are certain things that shouldn't because it has an effect on the heart, That's which right. of course goes to the heart, which we discussed earlier in the, in the series, that there is something very delicate about the eye 
and about the soul that lies behind the eye and that this is a very easy thing to injure so that the essence can become corrupted or the, or the water, I guess, can become corrupted, the source of, of water. Can I pick you up on something here, though? Because, yes. I mean, you're right. Everything that you just said has resonances with both the Ramadan series we did last year, but also our earlier discussion. The first one in the series, in fact, on intellectual yep. humility, uh, the heart that cannot humble itself. What is interesting, though, and it's partly, I mean, I don't know Arabic. I do know other Semitic languages. Uh, I also know sort of Greek and early Latin. But one of the interesting things that you find, especially with other Semitic languages and with Greek, is, and I think this might be picked up in the idea or the resonance, the further kind of etymological suggestion of spring, is that the eye isn't a window that one looks into. The mm. eye or the act of looking isn't something that happens to somebody, but rather something comes out of the eye. The act of looking is in fact an act so that you reach out with your eye. Something proceeds from the eye to apprehend, to grasp. Uh, which is why whatever is then grasped is then taken into something essential. And so this is why, for instance, within medieval Christianity, uh, an entire practice, a system of moral instruction took shape around what was sometimes called the custodia oculorum, the guardianship or, or the protection of the eyes. You need to be very careful what you look at because the act of looking can either reveal something about the moral capacities, the formation of the self, or the act of looking can bring something active to bear uh, onto something that actually diminishes that which you are looking at. In other words, by looking at something in a particular way, it's not that the thing being looked at is a passive object. The thing being looked at can be affected by the act of looking. I think Iris Murdoch is actually getting to at precisely this when she says, the contemptuous gaze withers. Whereas the eyes of grace bring life and enlarge. I find that incredibly interesting. I'm not sure, I'm not trying to say that these things are present in what it is you just described. But it just strikes me that we could not be further away from this particular moral conception of the act of looking than we are currently. You know, if I was looking, what's, what's the damage? It didn't affect anyone. I was just looking. It's not like I did anything about it. Or I was just looking at the person. They're sort of passive objects to the way that I'm looking at them. I think everything about the way that we live, about our the experience of sight, says something to the contrary. We know what it's like to be the object of a contemptuous gaze and for our lives to be diminished as the result. We know what it's like to be at the receiving end of a sneer or a haughty look. We, we know what that's like. And I think flipping the table now from victim to perpetrator, we know what it's like to look at something in a manner that we know is diminishing to ourselves and diminishing to the thing that it is we're looking at. So it's I think sort of merely objectifying or, merely or, objecti or something like that. that. That's exactly right. And, and that's where great American philosopher Stanley Cavell, when he refers to a condition of soul blindness, isn't that what he's talking about? It's a form of seeing that does not see the richness, the fullness of what it is that is actually there, that cannot see the object of looking as being fully human as I am, as, being, as having a depth of feeling, as being capable of pain. Um, a soul blindness is, for instance, what's at work when the slave owner looks at the slave and does not see the slave 
as being capable of real harm the way that the slave owner would be, but rather as little more than chattel. I mean, we've been describing these things as moral incapacities, and I think soul blindness of all is in fact precisely a moral incapacity. It's the inability to see what it is that's there, and by looking at it in a manner that is diminishing and that diminishes, it reduces that which is there into a mere object, into something that is regarded or treated with contempt or disdain. There's also, I think, the question of sensitivity that arises. I mean, that it is through the constant looking at things that a, a desensitization happens. Yeah, that's right. I think you see this really well in our culture because we have probably the most image saturated culture in human history. Mm-hmm. And I think you do see a desensitization, right? Whereby things have to become more and more spectacular, more and more extreme to hold our attention, mm. to hold our hearts, frankly. And that you might become immune or inured to certain kinds of human suffering or even non-human suffering as a result, which I think directs us back to this particular text, the idea of the eye that cannot weep, because there's something about it being, we haven't discussed weeping yet, but there's something about that that implies, and and this speaks to previous episodes in the series, that speaks to really a softness of the heart. And there are certain things that, over time can harden a heart. One of the really interesting statements of the prophet, which I, I think about occasionally, and I never really quite know what to do with it, but I think it's confounding actually for our age, where he says, too much laughter hardens the heart. Mm, interesting. And it is interesting because I think it's not something we would consider, but actually I can see how it does. Because one of the things that you experience, if you live your life in that everything becomes a a source of humor. So you mine everything for that which can be treated trivially Mm -hmm. or which can be laughed at. That's a very different response. The laughter is a great thing, but it has to be kept in proportion because if that's all you're doing, this idea that this heart becomes calloused because everything becomes reduced to, well, how can I derive some kind of, I guess, benefit for myself, but also just humor from it rather than penetrating something. No, this actually should move me in a different sort of a way. This attention to the hardening of the heart is something that is a very common theme in the Islamic tradition and no doubt a very common theme in other traditions. But the eye plays a central role in that because of this idea of the eye as an essence or as a source of life. Mm. So the other word is tadma'a. And so dama'a means tears. So tadma'a is the act of of weeping. Mm. Um, But here's interesting because it connotes something that, that is being fulfilled so kind of like a vessel that is being filled up. And I suppose this is another way of looking at the eye and conceiving of tears in the context of it, mm. that it's a vessel for us or of us, perhaps, a better way of putting it. So an ain in la tadma, an eye that can't be, or that doesn't weep, is an eye that simply can't be filled up. It can't be fulfilled. It's inexhaustible, I guess, in its capacity. An eye that can't shed tears connotes an essence that can't be fulfilled, therefore. Mm. And a vessel that, just simply cannot be overwhelmed by anything. So it's this idea of something becoming overwhelmed. If it can't be overwhelmed by anything, then that I think is the hardness of it, right? There's nothing that causes the person or the soul to feel, I don't know, what's the word, swamped, penetrated perhaps. Think about what we've discussed, you know, the the heart that cannot feel that awe or the soul that is never satisfied. There's something about an inexhaustibility there 
And it's the opposite of this idea of being immovable as a kind of badge of honour, right? This sort of what you might call hard stoicism that gets celebrated, particularly as a masculine trait. Mm. Um, And that is one dimension of this that I think is very interesting, is the way in which all of these taken together actually critique a certain kind of masculinity, really. They take the hardness of the masculine shell and they sort of seek to apply a solvent to it Mm. (laughs) and say, actually, that's a deficiency there. There has to be something else, something softer at the heart of this that that is the centre of virtue or the centre of the moral life. I think I'm done. Just before we bring in our guest, I I guess there are two tiny things that I wanted to supplement this with. It is interesting that what you've just described, Aristotle, who's not always a reliable guide, interestingly enough, to the moral emotions. Um, There are certain things that he simply would not regard as a virtue, much less a virtuous emotion the the way that we have. But compassion is one about which he is uncommonly articulate. So when he defines or describes compassion as the pained recognition of another person's suffering or vulnerability or misfortune, a pained recognition that extends from a realization of our shared vulnerability. Uh, you know, partly, unfortunately, this stems from Aristotle's jaundiced view of what sort of humans can be proper objects of compassion. There are, of course, some that he did not regard as being proper objects of compassion. But for those who are his equals, so I think from that extent, we can kind of apply it in a mode of democratic equality. The pained recognition of the misfortune or suffering of another undergirt by the knowledge, the understanding of our shared vulnerability, that that too could be me. In other words, there's something about compassion that extends from a combination of tragedy and identification. And it's that identification that undergirds the idea, I think, of recognition. So it's not simply putting myself in that person's shoes, but it's recognizing that this person is undergoing something that I too could fall foul of that it's not so much the expression of their diminishment or their unworthiness, but rather they have been overtaken by something. They have befallen something. And compassion, therefore, is the extending of the soul from one person to another. It's the recognition that we are both vulnerable in precisely this degree. So I think there's something there that's really, that's really important that probably suggests that the failure to feel compassion is in many respects a kind of moral denial of our shared equality or a tacit acknowledgement that this person somehow had it coming to them. I, I, I don't want to push that too far, but I think there's something there that's really interesting. The no, other... I think it's important, but it also goes in the other direction, right? There's yes. the ability to be moved by that which you would ordinarily regard as perhaps beneath you. Yeah, that's right. But which has its own majesty. I often think about your... Were you crying at the sight of a vine struggling for life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What you're describing here, what we're describing once you put all this together, I guess, is an overall condition of the heart. Mm, that's right. The final thing, though, that we haven't touched on, but I can't help but see as essential to the entire conversation, an eye that can weep is also a soul that can feel remorse. Do you remember yep. the debate uh, between John Howard refusing to apologize for that which was done to the First Nations of this land versus his willingness to say he regretted it. The The possible legal reasons. Yes, fine. But it also tainted our political air. 
I mean, it soured something in our, in our ability of what we can say and what we can acknowledge. The French philosopher Vladimir Jankalevich calls regret a kind of feeble remorse, a remorse that's unable to be touched with either despair or tragedy. What remorse is, is the pained acknowledgement of the suffering that another has undergone and the pained recognition that their suffering is something that I have somehow benefited from and continue to live with as a matter of memory. Remorse is something, I mean, I think Ray Gate is absolutely right. The ability to feel remorse is a moral achievement. Um, and so an eye that can weep is a soul that is able to acknowledge that which has been lost, that which has been damaged, that which has been lost, perhaps irreparably, and to live with it as a matter of moral courage and as a spur to hopefully living differently. Um, so I think the eye that can weep, saying that that is a self that can be remorseful, that can live with the memory of what has been lost as a pained experience, I think there's something there that, that shouldn't be underestimated in everything we're talking about. Shall we bring in a guest? Yes, please. All right. Our guest is Susan Banke. She's the director of the University of Sydney's Master of Social Justice program. Susan, we're so glad that you could join us for this of all episodes of The Mindfield. Thanks so much for being with us. It is such a pleasure. So I'm not going to put a question to you. We've traversed far too much terrain. You have very specific concerns uh, and a very particular contribution, I think, to make to this conversation. So I'm just going to cede the floor to you. Where do you want to take us? Thank you. Well, first, I wouldn't mind just making a comment about something that you spoke about a little bit earlier, which was this lovely discussion, Waleed, that you had about authenticity and the chain of transmission. And the reason that really spoke to me is twofold. First of all, because I peddle in human rights and social justice. And in fact, after I leave the studio, I'm going to do an interview with uh, the director of Human Rights Watch. And one of the things that I'm sure we will speak about is how important it is to authenticate and legitimize all of the claims that are made. And I love that that has very, very deep roots. Um, I can't help but note that Waleed, this idea that everyone that has spoken about these ideas in every generation is going to have their lives turned inside out. And I wonder if in three generations, your life is going to be turned inside out, Waleed, for <laughs> speaking about these things. Are we, are we going to find ourselves in that chain later on? I mean, that's more of a playful mm. observation, but... It but really what I will say is there's thinking. no way my reports are being accepted. None. <laughs> None whatsoever. Can I give you an example? There's a particular scholar who's like one of the most esteemed in this area, Imam al-Bukhari, and he, the way he examines, he, he would travel vast distances to observe someone who was narrating. Mm -hmm. And he once saw, there's a famous story of him seeing someone calling his horse by pretending he had food in his shirt. And so the horse would come over. And then he discovered he didn't have food. It was just a trick to get the horse to come. And he said, well, I can't accept his report. Oh, if he's prepared to lie to his horse, he might lie to some. So if that guy isn't acceptable, mm. I am nowhere in the conversation, Susan, not okay. even close. Okay, well, th these are indeed stringent criteria. But in any event, that whole idea of a train of transmission for what we call triangulating your data, but it's the same idea. It's ensuring there's authenticity, and I think for very good reasons, for different reasons perhaps when we're talking about um, human rights documentation today. Anyway, I'll get, I'll get to that later. Um, I just loved thinking about the chain of transmission and how we've had a deep and very long precedent for the reasons that it's, that it's important. Mm. Um, 
So, Walid, when you were speaking about um, the soul that would not be satisfied, and actually even earlier today, one one thing that you said, which I loved, was this idea about the resonance of the roots of words. And I've enjoyed so much hearing about them, and I thought I would throw in a little bit more, um, one that I think, Scott, you may already know, which is the roots of the word compassion in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Compassion or empathy is the word rachmanis. Mm, right. And that word um, comes from the root uh, rachem, which is a mother's womb. And of course, the suggestion here is something that we've just talked about or that you've been speaking about for the last uh, half hour, which is seeing others uh, as oneself. To be close to a person is to feel empathy. So if if it's from a mother's womb, one would imagine that it is a, something that is so close, there's no distance that one is going to feel empathy or compassion. Uh, and I think mm. I think one might say we go from the remote to the rachem. That's that's how we develop rachmonis or compassion. And this brings me back to tie into, I think, my, my favorite episode of the last four, which is the whole idea about knowledge. And I would like to argue, and here I, I may disagree with both of you, that knowledge can bring us part of the way towards bringing the distant closer. This idea that if we we know something and we understand it, we start to feel not just that we can imagine that person, but, you know, Scott, what you said, we can imagine the depth of feeling, the loss and the pain that someone else feels. And I would like to suggest, don't hang up on me here when I say this, but I would like to suggest <laughs> that even even gossip, you know, even the sports pages, Scott, can really bring us to some of that bringing the distant closer. I'll just offer two examples. I think people that read the gossip pages, they may jump into an article about Angelina Jolie because they're interested in her star power. But I actually believe that one can come to a place of developing that, that I, that I that weeps from hearing what she says about refugees. Likewise, if someone follows the life of Adam Goods and cares about sports and cares about how he was treated, I think the development of compassion comes from that. So, so yes, I, I want to say that knowledge can lessen that distance and move the remote to the Rachem. I don't, no, I, I, I don't no. have any profound disagreement with that, Susan. <laughs> but Neither I, do I, really, with those sort of chosen examples. No. Yeah, but, but I think what we're talking about there, that's the difference between gossip and biography. Mm. And, and I think, I mean, what, what gossip is, is a symptom of the intermixture of the true, the trivial, and the manufactured. Um, a gossip is a form of light knowing that is designed to be snacked on and then discarded. Um, and I think one of the problems that I think both Walid and I have with our current informational spaces is that those things which really should draw us in, which really should arrest our attention, are being diluted by their proximity to what is really purely trivial um, and which really shouldn't be given any attention at all. And the problem then is that when our habits of looking, of attending, of tarrying with something, and if you think about it for a moment, that's what remorse is, isn't it? It's the ability to tarry with the pain of what one has been complicit in. That's mm. what the pain acknowledgement of, of, of something is. So many of our right. habits of viewing 
are conditioned by not tearing, by sliding over the surfaces of, uh, of things. And so I, I think, I mean, look, you're right. But if our habits of looking, of drawing close, were better honed, were better cultivated, I, I think it could lead to that proximity that you're talking to. The problem at the moment is that even forms of immense suffering uh, end up getting, if you like, the gossip treatment. We draw mm. close as a matter of being a spectator. It's funny. That's yeah. exactly what I was next going to, okay. to bring up, if Go I ahead. may. Which is that I, I want to nuance that whole idea about the relationship between knowledge and compassion in, in a couple of different ways. So one is directly to your point that I think that we now have discourses that really potentially problematize the way we think about lessening that distance. Mm. So I, I point to the way in gender discourse you might hear some a politician say, we have to protect women because I would never want that to happen to my daughter. Mm. Or we say refugees are just like us. Or we say, you know, for the Jewish holiday of Passover that passed last week, we say it is incumbent upon us to imagine ourselves as if we personally left Egypt. And in thereby establishing that relationship, the idea is we develop compassion. And that that may be how compassion gets built up. But what about having compassion for those beings to which you cannot relate, mm-hmm. like the eye that can only weep for other blue eyes, to maybe torture <laughs> that analogy a little bit further? And then I wonder... What do we sort of do with that? I mean, one of the things that you said last week when you did the episode on knowledge is that maybe knowledge is that way of creating that, of of making that relationship so that we are inscribed with compassion through reading, through memory. And, you know, I... I I quote here Joyce Carol Oates, who said that reading is the sole means by which we slip involuntarily, often helplessly, into another skin, another's voice, another soul. That doesn't necessarily have to be the person that is just like you, the daughter, the refugee that is just like you. That's what reading, that's what a certain kind of knowledge allows us. And I do want to just, if you don't mind, just say I, I loved what you said Uh, on that episode, Scott, about reading, because I have always found reading to be a maddeningly imprecise verb. All it really describes is eyes that go over the page. Mm. But really, Mm. we need a host of words to talk about what happens when we are absorbing material from a text, the ways that we start to feel, whether we call that compassion or empathy or an opening of the soul or the inscribing on ourselves of what we of what we read and accept. And that that was the first kind of nuancing that I wanted to say about the relationship. Mm. The second is a little bit more of a practical one, which is how the practices of humanitarianism and advocacy that are frankly driven by such compassion, or, or so we claim, how those can sometimes be rendered disturbingly one-sided. You know, we think about some of the images to which you referred earlier, Waleed, this idea that we need to increasingly have spectacular and sensational images to hold our hearts, to hold our attention. And we also have texts like that. I mean, I point to the words on probably one of the most famous poems in the United States, which is Emma Lazarus and the New Colossus, which is the words that are the most famous are the end of that poem, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And while 
I love the Statue of Liberty, and I've visited it many of times. That's what's on its pedestal. I would put to you are pretty problematic words. <laughs> Those do not seem to create that kind of balance and reciprocity that I believe really should be where compassion sort of comes from. I, or do you think I, uh, condescending in some way? Yeah, yeah. And actually, I, for a moment of levity, not that everything has to be about humor, but for a moment of levity, I'll, I'll point to something that is, you know, a part of what I have, have written on is the dangers of voluntourism. So there's this marvelous Instagram account called Savior Barbie, this incredibly pointed and funny Instagram account that shows Barbie going all through Africa, taking pictures of herself and being completely, frankly, insensitive to the people that she's there for, mm. in quotes, right? Which is this idea that why why do we engage in these humanitarian actions? Um, there's a lot to, to unpack there about the difference between the humanitarian impulse and the humanitarian imperative. But really, if we think about what drives us to want to make change. It should not be because we are looking at the beings as beneath us, hmm. that we see differently from us. The equalizing, I think, is difficult. I, I frankly don't think I've gotten it right. I actually speak about that in my in my classes when I teach that we we have to be hard on ourselves. And in fact, we have to be able to say, my God, what have I done? Hmm. As you pointed out earlier, Scott, we have to be able to say, ugh, I'm sorry. I messed that one up. I I was a little bit haughty. I thought I was the white savior. And I'm okay doing that. I do that. I was at a, I don't want to say where, but I was at a talk where a man was talking about how he was trying to help some trafficked women. And he literally talked about getting on a motorcycle and driving into a community to rescue a woman. Okay, it wasn't a white horse. It was a motorcycle, and he had no possibility to reflect on himself and say, oh, that was a little bit patronizing. That that was not an eye that was weeping at all. And so I... It was too excited by the prospect? Oh, look, I think the idea there was that he had not in any way considered the consequences of going into a community and saying, um, I'm just going to take women out of a trafficked community Okay. With yep. with yep. no thought to what that meant. And it, to my mind, that's kind of the worst example of a white savior mentality. So maybe you're not on a white horse, maybe you're on a motorcycle, but. <laughs> um, it's interesting listening to you, though, talk there, particularly about the relationship with knowledge, mm. uh, between knowledge and compassion is. Actually, I know we spoke about, and Scott particularly spoke about reading, and we did a whole show on the importance of reading and then writing, all this sort of stuff. But Actually, there's a deeper element of knowledge that's implicit in what you're saying there, Susan, isn't there? And that is the idea of imagination. Mm. Mm. Um, there's a, a deeper kind of intuitive knowledge that I think can become corrupted or can become refined. So I don't, I don't think that everyone's intuitions are necessarily equally good or everyone has the same moral imagination or the same moral capacity in their imagination. But it does seem that the better and the bigger, the more powerful that branch, that, that dimension of your knowledge, the closer you get to the kind of compassion I think that you're talking about. I love that. And I have, I have something to say on imagination. I wouldn't have used that word, but I love that, Waleed, because I think many of these 
ideas from which we seek refuge, the the moral incapacities, are they come out of a a sense of humility and imagination mm. together, and in the instance of being able to filter knowledge, I might suggest one last idea. I think remedy is too strong a word for it, but I would like to suggest that we might think about our relationship with other beings rather than, of course, feeling sorry for them or feeling that they are just like us, but a reciprocity, a real reciprocity. And where I think that reciprocity is the strongest and what I think requires a good deal of imagination for us now is indigenous scholars and the work that's been done by indigenous thinkers. So an indigenous perspective is one that thinks about not just other human beings, but our reciprocity with the living world. So the lovely book Braiding Sweetgrass by um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, she makes this point that paying attention is a form of reciprocity with the living world, receiving the gifts with open eyes and open heart. And it was through her book that I read um, the work of Greg Cahete, who's a um, Native American scholar from the United States who writes beautifully about this idea of how the kinds of knowledges that we might embrace more usefully, not Western knowledges, not the collection of facts as you spoke about in this previous episode, but a real knowing of things is knowing about the world around us, the natural world around us, in a way that, frankly, for me, living in a city does take some imagination, Walid. you know, mm -hmm. just to understand that. But if I can just um, mention a, a quote from Greg Cahete, he writes, community and family are not just relationships to other people, but a relationship to the place we lived and we live. In this case, the relationship to the land itself the relationship to caring for the land, a kind of mutual, reciprocal kind of relationship that allows for the land to prosper and to regenerate itself while at the same time providing food and sustenance. And I can think of no better way to weave together imagination, humility, and compassion by imagining that kind of reciprocity. Mm. And I'll just point out on that precise point, Susan, that when Simone Weil defines the opposite of attentiveness, um, allowing that which is beautiful to be in its beauty, uh, sometimes she defines the opposite as contempt, looking at something as something that is less than one and therefore vulnerable to whatever I want to do with it. The other term that she uses quite often is instead of seeing that which is beautiful, I ended up eating it. In other words, consumption is the opposite mm -hmm. of attentiveness. Mm. And it just, th this is where I don't want to take us too far off track or undercut what we've been talking about. But I often worry for this precise reason about some of the language surrounding empathy. Even, even empathy when it comes to reading, as if reading transports us empathetically into the experience of another person. I'm not sure that it does, and I'm not sure that it's supposed to, and I'm not sure how effective empathy, in fact, is. It's saying that 
you know, an experience of pain and suffering that is so utterly singular to this person, to these people. It's something I can imagine my way into. I think rather than empathy, what the practice of kind of compassionate tarrying does, it allows us to stay in a position of learning whereby we can hear how that experience of pain is expressed in the particular vernacular, in Mm. the particular moral register. And this is why I, I guess I'm not sure how much we can imagine ourselves into another position. What I can do through reading, through the moral encounter that can perhaps come through practices, rigorous practices of reading, and certainly through the practice of humbly attending to the lived reality Mm -hmm. of another person, what I can do is I can expose the ego to be diminished. I can allow the ego to stop taking up the lion's share of the space between us and hopefully through that experience can come to experience genuine remorse. And maybe this is also why. I know it's a bad term to use in these discussions, but to experience the suffering of another with a proper degree of pity, pity need not be condescending. It can be the first stirring of the soul to the moral reality of the suffering of another person. It can be the first way that I, I feel the ego begin to contract under the sheer moral weight of that person, of that people's, of those moral beings' um, experience of diminishment in the world. So I think this is where we need to better populate, don't we, our own vernacular, our own moral vocabulary about what it means to contract, to reduce, uh, in the face of the full reality of a beautiful other. I don't know, Scott. I I have a real hard time with pity. And and I have felt it, and now I apologize for it. I, I feel quite viscerally against the word pity. It may be because I've seen enough human rights documentation reports that say this pitiful group needs our help. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm right. I'm reacting to mm. a discourse rather than that emotion. I I'm willing to think on it and to change my mind, but I haven't quite yet. <laughs> yeah. But if you say that in, in Homer's Iliad, mm. when Achilles looks at Priam and the first stirring of the moral reality of this father of Hector who is bowing at the feet of his mm-hmm. son's killer. And the first feeling that he has of moral awakening is pity. My God, this father who's been deprived of his mm-hmm. son. And they end up eating together. And pity is the first. So I, I think you're, you're right. Viewing others as pitiable or as pitiful, I think that's probably an expression of contempt. But maybe the recognition and the refusal to run away from that first stirring of the moral reality of another person. But couldn't we call that a stirring of compassion rather than a stirring of... Yeah, probably, probably. Also, I love what you said about consumption, and if I could just throw in something else, one of the things I'm the most proud of in the program that I direct is that we do not shy away from the hard question of research and even of the humanitarian aid sector as being quite extractive. Hmm, That we... And of course, we try to to work against that. But research is its own form of extraction from particularly from liminal and marginalized communities. And I think you are absolutely right to caution that even reading, if it's just simply done as a form of consumption, is going to lead us away from the kinds of 
moral capacities, if we want to have an inverse to moral incapacities, that we want. Consumption of books, of knowledge, of ways of trying to engage the world that are extractive. We need to be mindful of those. And I think what's so hard in my experience is that it is often people who, again, to torture the analogy probably too far, it is people who weep the most who can inadvertently be the most extractive. Wow. They are not weeping to be performative. They, they potentially weep because they see something as sad, but failing to see the consequences of extractive practices. Here I speak mostly about, you know, the, the advocacy and the humanitarian aid industry, maybe less so about reading, uh, but maybe forms of knowledge, you know, different kinds of ways of sharing forms of knowledge, I think can be extractive. And maybe that's why your point about the vernacular, Scott, about trying to imagine, imagine, is that the word? To imagine the experiences of, for example, First Nations people in their own vernacular can be such a useful corrective mm-hmm. to that kind of consumption and extraction. Well, what a way to end the series. Now yeah. that we've extracted everything we can from you within the time we have, Susan, we'll let you go. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Such a pleasure. Was, no, no, the pleasure was all ours. So thank you. Scott, thank you. I know we're coming back next week to do something else, but thank you for accompanying me through the series. It was good fun. Susan Banke is Senior Lecturer and Director of University of Sydney's Master of Social Justice Programs, our guest for this week's edition of The Mindfield. The final in our Ramadan series. Normal programming resumes next week. We'll see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.